I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which we get inside the minds of some of the best chefs on the planet. We found out when they developed their passion for food, how they cultivated it, hopefully providing you with a bit of culinary inspiration along the way. We'll be talking outdoor cooking too, of course, and putting our guests to the test in our recipe challenge. Now, amongst those who've already joined me on the podcast, Ken Hom, Angela Hartner, Nadia Hussain, Gokwan, and Marcus Waring. But today, we're grilling Jason Atherton. Jason learned his craft under some of the world's finest chefs. Pierre Kaufman, Marco Pierre White and Nicolas Dennis. He spent almost a decade working with Gordon Ramsay before going it alone in 2010. I'm sure there'll be interesting stories around that. Um, He's since opened numerous restaurants across the globe, including his flagship Pollen Street Social, which is widely regarded, by me included, as one of Britain's best eateries. Mr. Jason Atherton, welcome. Thank you, sir. So... I suppose before we kind of go into your background, how has the pandemic treated you? Because I mean, you you you're a global brand. You know, you're you're all over the world, literally. It's the same for everybody. Everyone has, you know, everybody always looks at other people and say, well, you know, they they seem to have come out of the pandemic quite well, or they've not handled it very well, or or, or whatever. But every every single person on the planet has had some issues with the pandemic in some shape or form. And me and my wife, exactly the same. It's been an absolute nightmare in some senses. And in other senses, it's been a godsend to spend time with the kids, um, especially we've had a newborn baby. She, uh, little Athena, is 21 months. So we've absolutely That's loved. That's great timing in some respects. Yeah, it's been perfect. So she's so all the time we never gave the first two kids, unfortunately, we've been able to um, give a lot of more time to Athena. But on a business side, it's been a nightmare. So, you know, we watched over a period of like 16 days, the company just go from having really amazing revenues um you know we were either owned or part of a 50 million pound empire just collapse over 16 days it was quite horrific and obviously everyone just goes oh well if you're making 50 million it must be you must be okay but the backlog of debt what is attached to that because it, you know everyone knows our business is run on 30 40 50 days credit rent da, da, da. i spent my whole lockdown negotiating terms with landlords suppliers Everything, making sure the staff was okay, running pub quizzes for the staff, do you name it, anything we yeah. could do to do. We cooked for the NHS, we we did our charity stuff, our charity action, and you know we just did the right thing. We know we, we, we didn't get it perfect, of course we didn't. Um, we missed some steps, of course, like any company would do as big as ours. But I think we did as good as we could have done. You know, I think we're bigger and we're better and stronger for it coming out the other side. And we've opened a couple of new concepts since. Um, one being in Mykonos, which has been absolutely wonderful. That looks beautiful. I mean, I, I follow you on Instagram, and I remember sitting at home the other week and having one of those days. Say, oh, I just want this to end. I just want something exciting to happen. And I saw you little videos wandering Mykonos. <laughs> I thought, you know what? He might be one of my mates, but right now I bloody hate you, Jason Allen. <laughs> I mean, that 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 looks absolutely amazing. It looks fantastic. Yeah. So just just remind me. So globally, where are you? What countries are you in? So we've got obviously the UK, Shanghai, uh, New York, Mykonos, Saint Moritz, so Switzerland, Brussels for next year, Saudi Arabia for this year, for later in the year, and the Mirror Cube, the Mariah Consul. Oh wow! Um, and then we Dubai. We're looking at new projects in Dubai, and where else? That's it. Wow. I mean, it, it is quite amazing. And oh, the, Philippines. Sorry, Philippines. Oh, of course. Oh, I get, of course. And then the Dubai one, of course, you and I at the moment were opposite, our restaurants are opposite to the fact that we could actually stand on the balcony of our respective restaurants and, and wave, wave to each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. With that close. And Share also, recipes. And we did have a rather 
pleasant, I seem to recall the front end of it, night when you came over to mine after you'd finished service yes. and Tom Kerridge was over. That's right. And of course, Tom doesn't drink, so you and I made up for that and uh, <laughs> we managed to drink everything that we could. I And I remember the next day having an interview, I think 10 o'clock in the morning, one of the magazines over there thinking, why, oh, why did I stay up till three o'clock in the morning with Jason Abbott? <laughs> Happy days. All right, so let, let's go back to bases then. So so when you were growing up, how, how what was food like in the Abbott household? It was pretty basic. Mum was a good cook, um, so she always cooked the British classics, you know, Friday night, get home from school, and it was overcooked liver and onions. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't calves' liver. What we got attuned to cooking at Michelin level, it was um, the lamb's, you know, the lamb's liver, what yeah. was like rubbery as hell, right? Your Sunday roasts were good. Um, apart from the soggy veggie, and then um, yeah, the, the veg that she puts on on Wednesday lunchtime, ready for Sunday. Yeah. Exactly that. <laughs> and mashed potato, what's full of water. <laughs> and I've tried to teach mum since, but she's having none of it. So um, yeah, so it was just that really. You know, nothing more than that. I mean, yeah. you know, traditional stuff. But you know, a lot of people ask, you know, how how on earth then did you be inspired to cook like you cook? And I said, well, look, you know what it was? It was it was a, a light bulb moment when my stepfather said, I want to join the army quite young at 14, 15, I'd seen the army every summer. Skegness used to be packed in the summer and there used to be what we called the playing fields and the army, the Royal Air Force and the Navy would set up to show how amazing our armed forces were for people on holiday. And there was an assault course, an open kitchen where the army catering corps would have beautiful white hats and they would make omelets and tell you about life in the army as a cook. And I was fascinated by that, A, because I always wanted something to eat. And B, because me and my mates were always messing around these mini assault courses set up. So we was always hungry. And I just thought, you know what, that could be kind of cause cool as I was leaving school. That I didn't do very well at school. I want to join the army. Well, you know, my stepdad said, well, if you, you can only join the army if you learn a trade. So I thought, um, army catering corps. So that was always in my head about the army catering corps. I got sent home about an older shop, passed all my tests, did basic training. Because when you go in as a chef in the army, you go in as a soldier, don't you? Irrespective of what you're exactly. going to do, yeah, you have to be a soldier first. Yeah. So you, so you, you, you're, you're affiliated with the Royal Infantry, and you do all your basic training with those. Um, and you know, I was very good at athletics at school, so I was super fit, um, and could run long distances. Was winning all the long distance races and stuff, so they liked that. So you got a sort of a special pass for that because you were sort of good at athletics. But I just hated the army. I didn't want to be a soldier. Really. Right. Do you know what I mean I? So How quickly did you know? Uh, two hours. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, those boys are like made of really firm mm. stuff. You know, it's a different. They're a different breed, and I really want to be a cook, and I realised that quite quickly. So I, I did my basic training to prove I could do it. Came out after my basic training. Do you get? Do you get the option to come out after, after basic, basic training? Right, okay. Yeah. So after basic training, you sign a two year two year contract. After basic training, you're allowed to make a decision. You have to go through a series of interviews. Yeah especially because they like me. So so they really tried to convince me to stay, but I knew I wanted to be a chef. So I came home and then very quickly um, moved to London um, at the age of uh, 17. Lived in a youth hostel at an Ills Court and got a job in a in a really good restaurant. Hold on, because right, so this happens every single time when we when we do grilling. So because everyone tells their own story so many times, the almost that crooks moment Everyone kind of jumps over it. For example, when we had Rachel Koo on and she was saying like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then decided that I just moved to Paris, teach himself French and then enroll on a pastry course. You go, in a sentence, you do that. And you go, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's Let's go back. Yeah, and yeah, you've yeah, done yeah. exactly that. You say, right, okay. So I came back, came out of basic training, moved to live in a hostel, got a job. Let's slow this down a bit, Abbott. So, so how does that process happen? So did you come down to London 
with no job, just saying, right, I'm going to be a chef. Now, I'll tell you what I did. I bought the Good Food Guide from WH Smith's in Skegness, looked through it, all the top restaurants, what I'd either read about or heard about were, were in London back then because this was at 86. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it was Brian Turner. I had a Michelin star at um, down near where Claude is now, near Verbendum. Anthony Wall Thompson had a Michelin star at the, the Lanesborough. You had, I mean, some of the, you know, Marco Pierre White had just started to emerge. Um, you had the Rue Brothers. You had uh, Raymond Blanc. I wrote to everybody and right. not a single person answered apart from one chef who just got to 14 out of 20 and rising star in that current guide. And that was a guy called Boyd Gilmore. He wrote back to me and said, yeah. Where was that? Where was that? It was a restaurant called Boyd's Glass House on Kensington Church Street, right opposite Sally Clark's on the verge of winning his his first Michelin star. And he said to me, come, but please get other interviews because you're very underskilled and I might not give you the job. No one else answered. So I just thought I'm going down anyway. So I went down and, and it was, I knew sat in my bedroom in Skegness. That was a light bulb moment. I said to myself, Jason, if you're going to do this for the next 50 years, you better get bloody good at it. Yeah. You know, I don't want to bumble through life just being okay at something. Because you, you said you said before that you weren't particularly academic, didn't do particularly well at school, but you were good at athletics. Have you always been... I always sort of think with you that there's a lot of black and white in your world that you say, right, okay, I am going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Was this the same thing that you say, okay, if I'm going to do this, yeah. I'm going to be good at it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything I've applied myself to, I've been good at. So, you know, I was addicted to fishing when I was younger. I was mustard at it. Yeah. I was mustard at it. I could wipe the floor of anybody. You know, I just had a natural instinct for it. I don't know why. I did athletics. You know, I ended up representing the county and even got chosen to join the England squad in Rotherham for pole vaulting, believe it or not. Wow. Not many people know that. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so my, 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 I used to have to drive to, well, my, my, my stepfather used to drive me to Rotherham once a, once a week for training. And then I realized quite quickly that was the bottom of the pile of those boys and I was never going to get anywhere right. near it. Even to the point where we went to, went to an England camp in, in Spain to do some training over the summer um, and stuff, but it was too late for me. I was already 15. Right. And there was kids, like there was a kid from Manchester, actually, I can never remember his name. I always looked out for him at the Olympics and stuff, but, but I never saw him. And he was big. He was like 15, but he looked like 26. He was massive, do you mean? Yeah. And he was bending these poles and shh, breaking European records at 15. I was like, oh, forget that. Do you mean? Yeah. Like, I'm, like, I'm like a metre and a bit away from this guy, do you mean? No chance. So anyway, when I apply myself... I get, I've got an obsessive yeah. nature. I think most chefs do have yeah. that. It's so deep, our industry, that if you don't have an obsessive nature about it, you don't learn enough to get ahead of the competition. Yeah. You know, we live in this, you know, what we were talking before, we live in this turbulent time at the moment where, listen, I totally support a work-life balance. I get it. I understand that, you know, but at the same time, in our world, if you don't, you own, you will only ever get out of it what you put into it. So if you want to run a restaurant, you have to know pastry, you have to know sauces, you have to know meat cookery, fish cookery, fish sourcing, bakery, restaurateuring, laying tables, guest culture, that you're not going to learn that in a year. And it's a lifelong journey and it's got to be inside you. I always say that hospitality is in my blood. It's 100% in my blood. I could walk into someone else's restaurant and see someone get from a a chair and actually want to get out of my chair and help them get the chair out. Oh, same. It's in you, right? We are the worst people to go out for dinner with, aren't we? That's the reality. The you know, worst. if you go out with a group of people and you are the only chef in that group of people, then the first 20 minutes you spend your time looking around the restaurant going, there's a light bulb out there. Oh, they've been waiting at the door too long. Oh, I can't believe that they're using those that glassware. Yeah, I mean, we no one's cleared that table worst. yet. Yeah, 
the world's worst. <laughs> All right, so 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 you so you get a reply. You made yeah. the decision that you're going to be brilliant. How did the interview go? Went there. Uh, Boyd said, you know, look, you know, your skills are really poor. You don't know what a demi glass is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'll never forget that. I was like, demi glass. Like, he said, "What's a demi glass?" And I was like, ah, um, "I don't know." Yeah. And he was like, "I wasn't going to lie to me." So I don't know. So he said, "Go through your interviews and let me think about it." I said, "Look, Boyd, I'm, I'm a look chef, and I'm, 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 I'll be honest, with you, I don't have any interviews. I've got somewhere to sleep tonight. But I tell you what, why don't you let me wash the pans for a little bit? I'll stay. I'll come early in the morning. I'll stay later, and I'll, I'll do all the veg prep. See how it goes." And he said, "Okay, all right. If you're that determined, I'll do it." And that's how it started. Wow. Yeah. How big was the restaurant? Oh, it was tiny. It was like 35 seats. Right, okay. It was like four in the kitchen. Yeah. And then not long after, someone got booted and then he promoted me. I was commie chef uh, and I thrived. I loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. And even on my days off, we used to work five days a week. Um, restaurant was shut two days a week. And on my day off, Tim Hughes is now the group exec chef for um, uh, Richard Caring. Had a restaurant in Soho. It just finished working at Harvey's. It's where the old Arbuter site was. It used to be called Le Hippocamp, okay. which is French for the seahorse. And he ran that for a famous restaurateur back in the 80s. I used to go work there on my two days off. And the reason why I did, because my, my pay was so low that I had no friends. I had nowhere to go out. And I just thought, I'll go and work there. He'd give me staff food. And uh, he was a friend of a friend. So I worked for Timmy, who's still a best mate today. And uh, I'd work two days a week. Um, so you're doing seven days a week? Yeah, but you know what? It's like, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was learning so much. I mean, I was making souffles within six months of being in London. You know, now I realize how fast I was moving mm. and the respect I was getting in the industry, unbeknown to me, just by putting the graft in, you know, and all my, that's like a dirty word these days, do you know? And it's like, but... Do you, th- do you think there's something about... So when you work in a in a small site like that, do you think that helps with a rapid development? For somebody like you, who is so determined and, and wants to be the best. So rather than, you know, you go into a big establishment and you're on pastry or on veg prep for three months, four months, whatever. When you're on a 35-cover restaurant with a small team, yeah, your opportunities are almost kind of more likely to happen more quickly. If someone's off, you can say, listen, just get you on this section because we need someone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I came back from France, I realized that I'd never worked in a huge brigade. It's always been small fine dining restaurants. And then I realized that that also can give you good benefits in mm. management skills. You know, I, I chose to work at a restaurant called Coast under Stephen Terry as his yeah. chef. And I learned how to run. I loved that restaurant. Yeah, it was great. That was it? a fantastic restaurant. I, I, re- I mean, I remember coming down to see that. And it felt that that was a very sort of a modern approach to fine dining. There was something really lovely about what it was, it was, game was doing there. It was brilliant. Oliver Payton was yeah. absolute visionary, and Steve was just like the most creative chef yeah. for that style of food I'd, I'd ever seen. And we were doing stuff like even blew my mind, you know. And I was like, wow. And so being in a small brigade, yes, absolutely. As a pure chef in your early years, I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, get yourself in a small brigade, learn loads, get your head down. And you know, in any industry, it's not about you know the first ten years of your life should never be about money, right? In our industry, anyway, yeah, because it's like a doctor. You, you need to learn your craft to make yeah. a value. Because people say, oh, what's the secret of success? I said, you know the secret of my success is? I am crazy about food. Yeah. Crazy about food. The rest is just coincidental that we own restaurants and it's a bigger business and this and that. I would be just as happy in 10 years' time when I'm 60 in the south of France in a tiny little restaurant with an amazing wine cellar, cooking there with one of my daughters, and I'd be just as excited as I am now talking to you about what we're doing at the moment. I'm crazy about food. 
you know, when food's getting delivered into the kitchen and like, you know, we've got you know, the Caesar mushrooms coming in and we've got, you know, we're, we're writing the menu for when we reopen in September uh, 1st with the game coming on and the fallow deer and all that type of stuff. And it's exciting. Do you yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. And if you don't get excited about that, then really you shouldn't be in food. I remember there was, there was a moment on, on a very different level. You know, I, I I don't work in the world that you work in, but with with greens as a veggie restaurant, what might still to this day, my favourite thing that happens is when the vegman arrives in the morning, I will see my chefs are like a swarm of bees. They're just waiting. And like, you know, as, as the stuff is being delivered in, then the guys are grabbing stuff. And by the time he's trying to check off what he's ordered, then they're, they're already on yeah, And yeah. it is it is the greatest thing, that yeah. that joy of people seeing ingredients. And if something great's coming, they go, have you seen this? this you know, and it, 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 it is absolutely magnificent. Yeah. I, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit because you said something very interesting there about not chasing money and I, I, you know whilst you know you're a very successful businessman and i still think that that is still your ethos to a certain extent do you think that's a problem with our industry now that almost because of the rapid expansion of hospitality over the say the last sort of 15 years that too many chefs now are chasing pound notes so they will leave you to say well i'm being offered a two pound 50 an hour more than you're paying me you go it's not about that yeah yeah no not not during the training yeah you know, Marco told us many things, but I'll never forget, you know, when I was leaving and he got me a job in, in France at Auberge de Lille for Marc Ambelin. And he, what, one bit of advice he gave me on, on departure was, you know, Jason, one of the greatest things you'll ever have as an asset is your brain in your hands because we're not brain surgeons. We're not, you know, we're not doctors. We're not scientists. He said, all we do is cook. Mm. He said, the more you can learn and keep in here and the more skills you put in those, the more value you, you become. And he said, if you don't do that and you put the hard work in now, later in life, I promise you, you'll regret it. He said, so go to France, get your head down. Yes, it's a bad pay packet. Yes, you're going to be bored. Yes, it's in the middle of nowhere, but he's one of the greatest chefs in the world. Go there, learn as much as you can, and then come home. And he said, it's, it's really, really important you understand that no one's going to give you money, right? You're not, you know, you're not a singer. No one's going to pay for a record but people will pay for amazing food and they will forever yeah. because people want to go out to restaurants. People will always want to go out to restaurants or people will want you to cook in their homes. You're always going to be able to feed your family, but you have to put the work in. And that's always stayed in my head, always. Yeah. yeah. So you start off, you're doing a bit of part-time work with, work with Steve, which is a great thing to do. What happened next? After Where are we now then? What year are we? When did, when did you leave Boyd? I So I left Boyd in... 88 or something like that 87 okay. and then i i then went to kaufman yeah so in that kitchen was eric chavot tom akins wow i roll in paul rhodes who's now got rhodes bakery uh, went on to win three michelin stars for shay nico at nico um i rolled in didn't do as long as i wanted there i didn't fit in the brigade so well i right. don't know why I stayed for quite a while did you go in there as a commie i i went in as a commie, so, yeah. as a commie chef you know what? I loved it. Loved the environment. Yeah. Tom was an amazing chef to watch work. My, my gosh, he was so fast and three, four years older than me. Very agile, very fast in the kitchen, very strong. Eric Chaveau was an amazing leader. Um, ran the kitchen like clockwork for, for chef. And then chef was like, you know, the typical old school yeah. French. They call him the bear because he would just tumble in. <laughs> you know, bowling in, do this, do that, do that. And, you know, and then it went on to win three Michelin stars. But I was there for about seven, eight months. And then one of my friends was working at um, Nicola Dennis. 
and they were on Great Portland Street and they were looking to extend their brigade to go to Hyde Park. And so Harold Jones, who I've been living with, who now runs Luckland Parks, Mission Star Chef, and Mike, called me up and said, look, Jace, they're, they're looking for chefs. Do you, want, do you want to come and have a look? And I thought, you know, I'm going to have a look. Uh, much bigger brigade than Kaufman's. I was struggling to keep up the pace a little bit at La Tonclair because I wasn't quite skilled enough. I was probably a little bit unskillful to be in that kitchen, so I was struggling. Um, so much. Were you so, aware of that, or, or you're aware of it? Yeah, I was aware of it. Right, yeah, okay. yeah. I've always been very mature in my in my reflections about everything. Yeah, and um, I was very underskilled to be in you know what was on the verge of winning three Michelin stars. The kitchen, I had the willpower. I had the I had the work ethic. You know, I was in at six and leaving at one. During it was, and I was taking home. I was so slow <laughs> that back then you had the term vegetables. What were all the rage? Right. So what I was doing was packing up my rucksack with vegetables, going back to my youth hostel in Earl's Court. Wow. And you had those, you know, Penta Delivery Company. Yeah, yeah. Penta would, would have these white spice containers, what were waterproof sealed. Yeah. So I would take them home empty. I would then sit on my bed. I had this little black and white. Having table. done a six in the morning to one o'clock in the yeah. morning shift. And I would sit there with my turning knife. I would turn the veg I need for the next day fill it with water. I had this little sink at the side of my bed and my black and white TV and I'd make a cup of tea and I'd turn veg for an hour, an hour and a half and just get it all turned, <laughs> put it in my little screw top container, screw it up, put it in my rucksack and then next morning I'd put it straight in the fridge because I didn't have a fridge or anything so I'd just put it straight in the fridge so they'd chill straight away and then just before service I'd just I'd drain off the water, put it in the emulsion to get them all ready for service and that's how I survived. Wow. That's what it took to do it. So I had the determination that was not the issue but but I, I didn't feel inclusive enough to right, okay. because I just didn't have the skill set. Yeah. So I then moved to Shea Nico. But you know what? Me and Coffin are still great friends today. He comes to my restaurants all the time, gives me loads of advice. Um, you know, he's almost like a, a mini father figure to me in a, in a way. You know? And uh, I, like I said, I only spent seven, eight months with him, but he's been, he's very supportive to the people who pass through his kitchen who he, who he yeah. feels is worth spending the time with. Yeah. And then went to Shea Nico. Absolutely loved it. You know, I was there for two, three years. So what what was the difference then? Why why did that? Why did you jump on board with that and and hit the ground running? Paul Flynn was the chef. Yeah, I loved Paul Flynn. Paul Flynn is now over in Ireland, got his own successful business. I've been out there and done a few dinners with him. I absolutely love the guy. He was really good at getting the best out of unskilled people. Right. Uh, I still joke about it today. So he, I never forget it. So again, I was on the on the garnish section again, not doing very well. So I think, you know, it's, it's a lesson here, right? So I was trying to be at the very top level before I was ready. So I did one job in London. I went straight into mm. a two, three Michelin star restaurant and then straight into a three Michelin star restaurant. I was not ready for that. I wasn't skilled enough. The loads of boys around me had already been working in that for over a decade and were out cooking me, out skilling me. Yeah. And it, and it affects your um, your mindset a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know? completely. But yeah. what you've got to do is say, okay, and Paul took me to one side and he said to me, and I, and I never let him forget it. He said, Jason, you're not doing a very good job. If you don't book your ideas up, you're going to have to leave the kitchen because you're too disruptive. Not disruptive in like me shouting. Yeah, yeah. Like just disruptive in the service, you know, because we're on the verge of getting three stars for this, for that. We, yeah. we can't have you going down every service. Do you know? I said, yeah, no, I'm really sorry, chef. I'm trying my best. He said, no, no, we can see you're trying your best. Yeah. You're lap first in, last out. It's not that. But we just, you know, maybe you're not ready. Maybe you need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Come back in a couple of years. And I said, okay, well, if that's what you think. Then he came back the next day and he said, I'll tell you what, I've got an idea. Why don't you go and be commie pastry? Uh, I said, chef, look, whatever, I just want to stay here. So he put me in pastry as commie. And for some reason, I was really good at it. I don't know why. Uh -huh. 
and I rinsed it, absolutely rinsed pastry. So me and Hal was on pastry. We had a senior sue above us, but we, he didn't really do a lot. Me and Hal pretty much ran it and rinsed it. Absolutely loved it. So did about eight, nine months on there, moved me back on the veg, rinsed that. And I just got my, I think it was more about confidence. Do you mean? Yeah. So Paul was good at that. He was yeah. good at putting people where they could gain confidence. And I just, yeah, I just thrived in that kitchen, really thrived. And, uh, um, you know, and Nico and his family still, still email me today and text me, you know, and say, so lovely to see you doing well. And, you know, I sent them some home delivery stuff when I was doing the home deliveries and so yeah, so it was a lo- it's a lovely time in this kitchen. Got- what happened next then? So so you're there, you loved it, you rinsed pastry, you're on the veg, and clearly now do you think that was a, a turning point in your career in the fact that suddenly almost like you your skills caught up with your ambition? I think so, yeah, probably. Or or starting to. Yeah. I, I started to believe that actually I did belong in that environment. But I've always said, listen, I was never the most skillful chef in, in any of the kitchens. No chance. There were people like, you know, at Le Tom Claire, Tom Aikens was a miles better chef than I was. You know, you go into the Shane Eco, you know, you had um, Howell Jones, who was a better chef than me. You had all these guys technically better than me, but not many of them had the, more, had, had the determination I had. Yeah. So eventually, like you said, my skill set just caught up through just doing it repetitively every day. Yeah. And that, that was, that's always been my, my key. Uh, you know, I, I I train boxing with Kevin Mitchell three, four times a week in the mornings. Do you? Because I trained with a guy called Stevie Bellios, and they were kind of they were they were roomies when they were. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. The Commonwealth Games, small world. We di- we diversify on grilling. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and you know, I always thought I was pretty pretty handy before I started training with Kev four years ago. Yeah. He's only told me recently, but he said, you know, when you first started me, you hit like a fairy. Do you remember? <laughs> and uh, he said, now you could knock a horse out, and I'm like, really? Was I that bad? He went. Yeah, it was terrible. You get you didn't know any positioning, no way. It's just repetitiveness. Yeah. Do you right? wish when you started boxing? Sorry to diversify away from food for a moment on grilling, but this is important because uh, I because I box three times a week, same as you do. Yeah. And do you wish that you had videos of when you first started? Because I know I do. Because the same thing, you're like you know, I'd never boxed before, and I knew I was kind of pretty poor. But again, Stevie says to me, he goes, "Mate, he goes, when you came in, I was thinking, oh." another lumbering middle-aged bloke who wants to box <laughs> <laughs> and you know don't get wrong yeah, exactly. i yeah, still yeah. don't think i'm kind of great but you know at least to kind of uh, i feel i've got technique and i know what yeah, i'm yeah. doing and I, I watch boxing in a different way now do you you know you yeah, can look at it and you, you i'm looking at somebody's technique as much as anything else really. i like the defensive side of it i do i really like it i do because normally that's what i'm doing <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but i just like the, the, the having to think so we'll do we'll do yeah. sparring where Kev will spar with me and, yeah. and, and uh, I'm not allowed to throw a punch. You know, thank God he doesn't hit me full pelt, but you yeah. know, he still gives me some. And, and you know, when you, when, you, when you miss that left hook counter or whatever, and you don't get your guard yeah. up, it, it, it sells, sends the bells yeah. ringing in your head and you think, my God, if they hit you properly. Yeah. yeah. Any, anybody who thinks that they could take a punch from a, from a pro boxer yeah. or an ex-pro boxer is deluded. Yeah. Because, you know, when they're, when they're just playing with you and it hurts, you think, wow. If you were doing this properly. Anyway, so that, that's boxing, which is, uh, thank you for joining podcast. the episode of Grilling. <laughs> All right, so 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 what happens next? Then? So you, so from Nico, where did you go next? So we got an opportunity. I went and spent uh, 12 months with Marco. Yeah. Nico didn't want me to go there. He wanted me to go and work for Roger Verger because that was his best friend down in the south of France. I didn't want to leave London yet. I was just really starting to settle into London a little bit, even though I'd been there for about by this time. What, what, what made you want years. to leave Nico's if you're enjoying it so much? Just you feel you just need... to learn more. Okay, just to learn yeah. more. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, at junior age, you shouldn't really spend more than a year, two years with any one chef. Yeah. 
because once you've done that, really, you've learned everything you need to learn. Unless you start moving into management, that's a different ballgame. Okay, yeah. But I'm talking about learning their style, their recipes, their way of thinking, and so forth. So then, yeah. So then I went to uh, Marco. Uh, we ju- we were just finishing off at Harvey's. He again was expanding his brigade to move to the high pop, where he won three Michelin stars. So we went to Harvey's. And we did a couple of months at the canteen in between, while we we were all working there. That's where I met Stephen because Stephen was running right. canteen, and uh, Gordon was knocking about then because Gordon had just got back from France. So I met Gordon for the first time, and then we opened up High Park with for um, Michael Lambie and Roger Pisey and Donovan Cook. They were all the main. They were all the main chefs out at the time, and yeah, it was quite a fascinating place. It was unbelievable to watch. I mean, Marco was just for me the most talented chef with his hands I'd ever seen. Wow, it's so fast. You know, this beast of a man. He was he was a monster, and he was so fast on the pans. I mean, I remember Donovan saying to me one day about you know he was training me on the meat, and he said you've got to be set by eleven o'clock, and I said but you know. Four hours is not enough. Yeah. And he was like, it's, it, it's taken like five to six hours. So we're having to get here at like five in the morning. We're not leaving till one, two. And he's like, no, 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 nonsense. Do you mean? So come in. And, you know, Marco came in and Marco had the section set up in two and a half hours. No way. Done. Bones chopped, sauces made, everything was fresh. This was like the proper Alamanute restaurant. Yeah. It was insane. I mean, you know, Gordon was probably his, his most trained chef who'd worked for Marco. Marco used to talk very fondly of Gordon, saying how an amazing chef Gordon was. And Gordon had just come back from France, came in the kitchen, did a few shifts with us. So I know Gordon back in the real raw days. Do you know? Yeah. Um, so where are we? What year are we in now, Jess? Where are we? Eight. I've never, I've never really backtracked it. Ninety. <laughs> this is ninety-four. Okay. So you're, so you're kind of yeah. six years into into London. So it's pretty meteoric. Yeah. Well, it's, but if you think about it, it's not really. It's just it's just choosing your restaurants wisely, I think. Yeah. You know, and they were the hottest restaurants in London. So why wouldn't you want to work for them? Once I'd done that, you're in a mix of crowd of people where everyone contacts each other. There was no mobile phones, no emails. So you all, you know, you either used to meet at the pub on your one day off or, yeah. or whatever. And you just, it was like you, you were forced to be together as a team. You had no choice because you didn't have any other friends. Yeah. Do you know what I mean you didn't have Instagram to meet people or or you didn't have Tinder to meet girls, that's for sure. So, <laughs> so the only place you could meet a girl was down at the pub, I'm afraid. Do you know? Looking like looking like a skeleton with skin put over it. <laughs> and and so so after Marco, so where next then? I mean, I, I I feel a little bit like I'm kind of racing through the seat, but I think I want to get to this point where I want to get to kind of the Gordon bit because anyway so where's next I'll, I'll, I'll so, come back to that I'll come back so to France, why it always intrigues France for a year a Burj de Lille for, for Marc Ambala came back from there and then again it was a, a, a fleeting it wasn't you know wasn't there for, for forever just really wanted to see how they did it in France do mm-hmm. you know I mean because a lot of people back then were going to France you know Tom was at the, the mecca of all cooking which was Joel Robichon and Jammer and just learned a lot about classic cooking you know, the cooking's never changed there yeah. in, all, in decades and decades and decades. So, yeah. And, and then I was toying with the idea of going to Paris. I had a job lined up at uh, Alain de Tournier. Never took it. Decided to come back to London. Didn't really have a job. Gave Steve a call. Uh, all my friends were talking about this new restaurant that was opened up called Coast. Yeah. Went to see Steve. And he said, well, look, why don't you come 
you know, why don't you come as junior sous? If you do a good job, you can be sous chef and help me run the kitchen. I said, okay, great, let's do it. So took a flat, started work. You know, I, listen, I've always been a workaholic. It is what it is. I don't make excuses for it. Some people say I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. Some people admire it, but you know, it is what it is. It's who I am. And, and I don't make any, any apologies for it. And, and I went in that kitchen and it was run like a bit more like a modern kitchen. So people, because it was hard work, people were doing seven days a week, uh, so, sorry, seven shifts. First time I'd worked in that environment, it was always, we did five or six doubles, right? Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of tidying up to do. We had chefs who weren't pulling their weight, chefs who were. So we set about as a brigade, really building some really cool people in there. And then, you know, me, Steve, Elliot at the time, some other did you, people. Did you feel when you went there? Because like I said to you, you know, I, I remember going there. It was probably, what, 93, 94, maybe. maybe exactly that. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember going there and feeling I was, I was dining in what I felt was almost like the future yeah. of fine dining. That It didn't have to be white tablecloths and and formality it felt relaxed which we're so used to now with with kind of modern fine dining but then it felt like this is incredible food but in a far more kind of very cool environment oh well. i mean oliver paint was the the you know the epitome of cool back then i mean he was 28 yeah. he was 28 years of age he had london in the palm of his hands he he you know he, he developed coast he developed atlantic bar and grill i mean two of the coolest restaurants in london right yeah um you know yeah, and I just absolutely, you know, we were cooking for Madonna, Oasis. I mean, you know, I remember, I remember you used to have to, to go to the office, you used to have to go past what we called the 50s, and you go past there, and it's where the bathrooms were, and, and Liam Gallagher's coming bumbling out of the bathroom, and I just thought, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> Do you think that was a golden age for, for British food as well? Because, you know, when you sort of started out, and, you know, all these kind of all the great guys like your Marcos, your Tom Aitken, yourself, obviously, Gordon, a, a kind of cutting their teeth if you like and by the time you get to the early to mid 90s all of a sudden british food was no longer the poor relation all of a sudden the great chef shouting about magnificent british food and british produce oh 100 percent. but the produce was always there yeah it was always there it never went away but we just didn't know what we were doing with it yeah and you know that the you know i mean you, you can go back as far as alice little simon hopkinson laid the foundations for for our generation to come along i mean there were some wonderful you know um, roly lee all those guys they, yeah. they were amazing chefs you know and they they set a found they set the foundations for us guys i mean i spent first eight years of my career being in kitchens where predominantly it was british chefs yeah i mean for marco it was all british chefs we had one foreign one foreign guy which was uh, uh we had a pastry chef thierry and apart from that it was all british guys i mean yeah. that just doesn't exist today you wonder where those guys, if they'll ever come back and, you know, to continue the tradition, what we've built, or, or is it going to be lost forever, right? Yeah. You know, are we the last generation, Simon, of, of the great British chefs, you know, because... I wouldn't accuse myself in that in that sentence, but of you, then, yeah. So, I, I mean, I do worry about that. You know, I think it's I think it's a really valid point. I mean, I suppose the only thing, I suppose from an outsider, from a, a listener listening to this now who isn't involved in our industry, I suppose then you look at, for example, from a television perspective, you look at the guys that are coming through on Great British Menu who have been trained by the likes of yourself, then yeah. you kind of think, okay, well, the future does look rosy. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic um, chefs on there. Yeah, but but I do, you do sort of wonder what the industry is going to look like, irrespective of them, whereas, like, you know, your your generation, our generation, you almost you felt like the opportunities were limitless. Yeah. That, you know, we can shout it from the rooftops and we can kind of do it, whereas it, it, it does get harder. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, you know, I think like, you know, like you say, with the likes of a um, Great British Menu, um, me, all, all the media in this country is fantastic for our industry. Yeah. And, and that's that's what's changed a lot. That long way that continue because I think that's super, super important. I think to be able to um, show people at home that our industry, actually, if you fall in love with it, is, yeah. an, is an amazing thing. Yeah. I feel blessed to be a, a chef. I really do. I think it's given my, I've seen the world. Do you mean I've met some of the coolest people on the planet? I've cooked for some of the coolest people on the planet. I mean, I've met, you know, I, I was in South Africa cooking for Nelson Mandela. I'm like, wow. how on earth does a boy from wow. a caravan site in Skegness yeah. end up in Cape Town cooking for Nelson Mandela? It's just ridiculous, right? Wow. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. It, it, it is incredible. All right. So, we, so we've got Coast. Yep. I, I, I knew that with you, this was going to be one of the hardest podcasts we do because you've done so much. And also, I think of all, all the chefs that we've had on, a lot of the places you've worked are my favourite places. People work with are my favourite people. So I'm, I'm trying desperately not to kind of like, not to make this a 17-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Ben, our producer, is sitting there, and you can see him thinking, my God, it's already kind of like we're 45 minutes in and we're not even halfway through. All right, so what, what, happens, what happens after Coast? So after Coast, I came to your neck of the woods. So Oliver Payton and Steve saw in me that, they said, look, we want you to be our head chef up in Manchester. Yeah. And Oliver opened up a groundbreaking place called Machinaire. Yeah. Uh, I went to the opening. Did you go to the opening? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was... I it, think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely insane. I mean, I mean, this thing absolutely was like a rocket ship in the north of England. <sighs> Crazy. I mean, it was packed. Yeah. Packed. I was 20... What was I at that age? 27? I was 27. I got nine out of 10 from Jonathan Meads, who yeah. was a real harsh critic at the time for air, which was the fine dining part and said, I was, I'm, I'm the most important thing to happen to British cooking since Gary Rhodes. So wow. trouble is at the age of 26, 27, 27, I remember Oliver Payne saying to me, he was right. He said, don't let that shit go to your head. And he's right. You know, and um, I've always been level headed and I agreed with him. And he said, look, it's just words on the paper. Fantastic review. Well done. Yeah. But get your head down and now make it count. And the restaurant was just packed nonstop. But the problem I had is I was applying my chef to party mode to running it. So I had some amazing chefs there. You know, Jason Whitelock, all, all those guys, very well-known guys up, up in the north. And they all wanted to work for me. But I was the worst man manager. Really? It was horrible. I look back now, the way I... Not so much treated the staff, what I expected from them. I always treated them well. They, 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 they admired me and worked hard for me because if, they, if I did treat them badly, they wouldn't have come back. But I just, I was, I never put their well-being first. I always put the well-being of the restaurant first. Yeah. And I didn't try to make the two work together. But now I'm mature now. I'm 50 this year. Of course, I would look at it like that. But back yeah. then, I was 27. I was driven. All I, all I cared about was that everyone loved the restaurant. It was fully booked. Yeah. And everyone did, and it was fully booked. And yeah. the only way I knew how to do that was to work seven days a week, 18 hours a day. And I was literally doing that. And what I didn't realize at the time was my relationship fell apart. I, I ended up living alone. I ended up putting myself in an early grave. I was not eating. I was, you know, I was, I was a total wreck. But I did my job. It got named best restaurant at this. I mean, it just won everything. It was ridiculous. Yeah. I just couldn't do it anymore. And that was my fault. I blamed I blamed the restaurant for being too demanding. But now I look back and I realize it was me being too demanding. Interesting. And I was being too demanding on the team. I was being too demanding uh, on myself. And I was looking for someone to blame for that. 
So I blame the restaurant. Yeah. Not Oliver, not actually the restaurant. It's too yeah. big. You you want to do fine dining. The restaurant's too big. This, da, 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 da. And the turning point in that was we had a really bad manager who was running upstairs. Um, all the rest of the staff carried him. I can't remember his name. It was a Saturday night. He was off on the Sunday. And I went up to the fine dining. I got there n- normal, seven in the morning. Yeah. I go up to fine dining, have a little walk around the building. And basically, as the left, last guest left, they didn't clear the tables. Mm. There was half eaten, you know, like half eaten desserts yeah. left on the table, glasses of wine. And I just lost it. Yeah. Like proper lost it. Went around like breaking glasses, shouting at everybody, you know, your pigs, you're this, this is disgusting. How dare you? Yeah. Do you mean this is our life's work? I've invested so much money in this. It's only because I cared, but it's the wrong approach. Yeah. You know, we know now at my age, you sit the manager down and say, right, look, you know, yeah. You're working the correct shifts. You're not tired. Can you explain to me why you, this, 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 yeah. this? But, you know, I was 27. Yeah. And I just said to Oliver, look, I need, I need to get out of here. For, for, for your sake and for my sake, I need to get out of here. I said, my head chef's more than capable of running it. He's more level head than me. I need a break. You know, me and my girlfriend at the time had finished. I spoke to Kaufman, actually. And Kaufman and Stephen have both been out to a restaurant called El Bui in Spain. So I'd done about, at this point, I'd done about 18 months in uh, Machinaire. And, I, and I, everyone, had got, everyone had been going to France, but no one had ever been to Spain. And Steve and, and both Pierre said, this guy is going to change the world. And back then, you couldn't Google it or go on his Instagram. Of course, account. yeah. The only thing I had was the Sunday Times had done a piece on him. Yeah. And there's Ferran stood there on the, on the balcony, the classic picture of El Bui with the sea in the background. And I just said to myself, I'll, go, I'll write the guy a couple of letters. See what happens. So I'd, I spent 50 quid having translated in Catalan, sent them, didn't answer her. And I just, you know, I'm sat with my mate in London. I just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to pack my bags. I'm going to go. Worst case scenario, I'm going to have, I'll have a long weekend in Barcelona and I'll come back and I'll find a job in London. So I went. I got a later flight to Barcelona, which was stupid. I got the late night bus to Rosas. Yeah. Didn't realize that it was a sleepy town. Everywhere was shut. <laughs> nothing, not a cafe, nothing. <laughs> so I slept on the beach. I slept on the beach that night, woke up, found a coffee shop, had a coffee, wet in the toilet, brushed my teeth, got changed, hired a bike from this little bike shop. Didn't realise it was a mountain pretty much all the way up Keller Mountjoy. Have you ever been? No. And got off up this mountain. I hid the bike in a bush, walked the rest. <laughs> Took me a good hour and a half to get there. So got there, got to speak to the chef just before lunch service and uh, doesn't speak a word of English yeah. or very little. And Eduardo luckily spoke perfect English. Uh, who was his head chef. Right. He said, oh, you're the guy who's been writing the letters. And they said, look, he said, there's no way you can work here. We don't even do the, we don't even do service in Spanish. It's in Catalan. He said, we don't have a single person who doesn't speak uh, either Spanish or Catalan. So again, I went down the, the washing the pans route and I said, look, can I stay, wash the pans? Wow. I said, I don't want paying. If I can just spend a little bit of time here just to see what it's all about, I'd be really appreciated. So he spoke to chef. Chef said, no. I said, so I said to Edward, look, I've come all the way from London. At least let me stay for a couple of days. Yeah. It's not going to harm you, is it? So he went back to the chef and she said, oh, let him stay. So I stayed, I washed pans. They were using all the copper pans, so, so no one was polishing them. So, you know, in France, yeah. Marco, we always stayed behind polishing them. So that night, to prove a point, I stayed behind. I polished all the pans, all the copper pans. And I left them all on the pass for the chef to see the next morning. A bit of a um, teacher creeping. Nice. And it worked. Chef loved me. He put me in the stage room. Uh, you know, and the thing is, I was already highly skilled, right? So yeah. 
I could open a box of scallops 10 times faster than a chef who's just started working. So we've got all these stagiaires who speak perfect Spanish. I'm in there. Eduardo gives me a box of scallops. And by the time all the rest of them have picked them up, I've finished them. So they're like, ah, this, we can use this guy. Do you think this guy's very useful? So how, how did you cope with the language barrier? I suppose at that level, it was quite mechanical what you were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and within barely a few weeks, they, they got me on service, you know, as a, as a commie on service. Still not paid. I, I loved it. Do you know what it was, Simon? It was a relief of, of not having to worry about staff. Yeah, yeah. Rotors, financials. GPs, food critics coming in, all that had been taken away from me. All I had to worry about was, was the scallop perfectly cooked? Have I braised the lamb enough? That, I can do that standing on my head. Yeah. And some, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was graceful doing it because the kitchen I'd been in were hardcore. Yeah. And so Chef, just, he absolutely adored me, do you mean? That's actually sent the shiver down my spine though because I think, you know, what, what he did for food, I mean, he did change the world. Mm-mm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, change the world. I mean, even so, I've got a little funny story. Actually, one of my friends is a very high flying CEO, and we're going to, uh, when we shut the restaurant for a couple of weeks, going to stay with him in Ibiza. He's got a beautiful villa. Again, off grilling, but this is a, this is a funny story. So, oh, I like it. There's a there's a, <laughs> a, a brand new beach club which has been funded by uh, by the Adria brothers, and the head chef is Rafa, who worked with me at Albuy at the time. At this point, when my friend's telling me, I don't know who who's running it or who owns it, and he's he's like, mate, mate. He said, have you got any connections at this new beach club in Ibiza? And I was like, well, I don't, I've no, well, what is it? I don't know what it is. So he sent me all the details on Instagram. It's fully booked for the season. Yeah. He said, can you do anything? So yeah, I got on the phone to Raf and he's like, yeah, man, it's never fully booked for you. So he said, <laughs> I said, how much? He said, when do you want to come? So I gave him the day. And he said, how many? I said, it was 10 of us, two families. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no problem. What time? Da-da. So I called him back. My mate's like, how on earth Brilliant. have you done that? I said, well, he's back by the Adria brothers and Rafa, the chef, is one of my old buddies. He's like, mate, you're a player. I said, no, I'm not. I'm just, it's just connections, right? Yeah. In the industry. Yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. I, I love that. Well, on a, on a very different level, I remember phoning you on a Friday night. A friend of mine uh, was over from LA and I was in London and she phoned me and sort of said, you're not around tonight. Oh, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm actually in London. So he goes, oh, why don't we meet? It's okay. If I said, where can we go and eat? I said, I want to eat somewhere nice. She think it's a Friday night in London. So I thought, right, I know. So I phoned you and you got me on chef's table at, uh, at so, Social Eating House. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. And uh, I remember her going to me, goes, how did you do that? Said, oh, you know what? It's just kind of the way that the world moves. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I recount that story. It's maybe not quite as good as someone who's been the bully, but you know what? For me, it's brilliant and uh, always. And I've, I do it to you many times. Although you did promise me a bottle of champagne when I uh, when I lunched with Emily Atak a while ago and uh, you forgot. Anyway, never mind that. <laughs> That was at Burners, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I'm going to take a break from the serious stuff because I'm overwhelmed and I know I'm going to end up talking about 15 hours. So we'll go on to, the, on to if you like, the, the nice bit. So we're going to talk about um, outdoor cooking and then we'll do well barbecue and A, we call it. See what we do there. Clever, isn't it? Uh, five questions that we ask all of our guests. So barbecuing. Do you have a favourite barbecuing memory? Favourite barbecue memory? I do, actually, yeah. So many, many, many years ago, uh, a good friend of mine had a barbecue in his back garden, back up north. He had two little sons who probably one was about eight back then. They're all grown up now. And he was grilling some sausages. And, I, and he said, Jace, why don't you take over the grill a bit? So yeah, I'll, I'll take over. And we're all having a beer and the music's playing. We're having a bit of fun. 
all my mates are there. And then I ended up burning everything on the barbecue pretty much. <laughs> and I'll never forget the eight-year-old turning around saying, Daddy, isn't he supposed to be one of those famous Michelin star chefs? What you keep talking about. And he said, well, he's supposed to be, yeah, but he's not looking like it now. Love so that was that. my, uh, and it was this eight-year-old kid putting me to rights about my grilling techniques. I love, I love that. I love the fact that your favourite barbecue moment is you messaged something up, yeah. which is which is just brilliant. Do you, so when you're, if you're cooking outdoors, do you have a favourite time of year for you? Because I would say, I like doing it in the winter. There's something very rewarding about cooking outside in the winter. Yeah. Grilling's a universal language, right? So when we go to the Philippines, we go to a place in Cebu called La Shan. So La Shan is where people on, you know, literally live on poverty line. You can set up your own grilling station. Mm -hmm. So it's all it's all sanctioned by the, the by the uh, local government. So you know, if you live on poverty line, you can build yourself a bar, go there, not pay any rent, uh, buy some food. People come around to make sure you know it's all clean and done properly and and it's safe. And then there's tables, and then people come around selling beer. And then you go to one of the stands, you can buy like little chicken yakitori or, 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 or lechon koali or whatever, whatever it is. I just like that because it's, it's about community, a sense of yeah. like, do you know what I mean? And you see people there who are like some of the richest people in, in the Philippines sat there with their families just buying things for like two, three P, four P, 10 P. Wow. You know? And there's people who are just making a living with a homemade barbecue, right? And they're feeding everybody from the, the elite down to, down to the poor. And I think that's really, really. And, is it that, and that's year round? Year round. Yeah, it's called Larshan. Yeah, it's, it's, I, we go every time we go. I love it. Wow, I, I like that. So, if you if you're barbecuing or if you're cooking outside, if you ever done anything that, that you sort of think, you know what, I've nailed this. This this does show that I'm not just a man who can burn sausages on a barbecue. Yeah, yeah anything yeah, yeah, that's yeah. been particularly ambitious or that you that you're proud of. What am I super proud of? What I I've got. I mean, listen, I've got a very nice barbecue setup at home. I've got to say, I'd, you know, I, when when we moved to the new house in Wandsworth, I had a beautiful barbecue area put in, and it was the first year we moved in, and I bought home some squabs, and they're not really that good for grilling normally. Yeah. So I thought, okay, best thing I'm going to do is I'm going to sear them in a pan indoors to get that skin crispy. I left them on the bone. Um, I put a little bit of uh, brown stock into some tin foil, mm-hmm. put loads of spices in it. You know, so I did a bit of a Thai spice mix, sealed it right up in, in the thing. And then I, I stuck it in uh, at this big yosper, but I left the door open yeah. and the thing was going. I thought, great. This, I, think, I think this might be great. You know? uh, and then I did like roasted onions with it and all that type of stuff, sweet and sour onions. And um, I forgot about it. And I was like too busy because we have friends around and I'm like, you know, we've got a glass of wine, we're yeah. chatting. And then here he goes, are those pigeons okay? And I was like, I won't say what I said. So I went running out. So crikey, I'd forgotten yeah, yeah. all about yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> so I went running out, run the back garden, took them out and they felt, they felt a bit hard. Yeah. I thought, oh no, they might be a bit overcooked. And I thought, oh, well, we've got nothing else to eat, whatever. Let them rest for 10 minutes. And they were just wow, amazing. Amazing. Wow. And what I learned actually, when you're spicing pigeon, if you don't cook it to a little bit more medium rare, because pigeon, we're taught to eat it rare. Yeah. Right? Then if you don't cook it to medium rare, then you don't get the flavor into it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And they have, they've taken on the flavor, the lemongrass, the chili, the ginger, nice. the, the kaffir lime, and God, they tasted delicious. And I was like, okay, maybe I've learned myself something there. I like the idea of that. I like the idea of that a lot, actually. But there is something, you know, we're, we're taught all the time when we kind of not overcook things, but sometimes those kind of happy accents, and because you've got the stock around and at least it's not going to dry out, even if yes. it's a bit tough, at least yeah. you've got plenty of moisture in it still. Yeah. 
the other one really we've answered really any barbecue disasters so we've had your sausage one if there's any more then i love that to hear one of the greatest chefs in the uk say here's what i cook really badly <laughs> well this is like you know this nearly cost us a fire engine so so we again when we moved to the, to, to the new house the barbecue wasn't built then but my wife was very insistent because we moved in the summer and it was red hot. We went to B uh, and Q and got some of those disposable barbecue. Yeah. My God, they're lethal. Yeah, I'm not one for reading instructions. I think I pretty much I can do do everything, but I can't. <laughs> so I opened it up. I got all my kids around me. We we put it on this little stand, and I lit this thing. I need to go backwards a little bit. So so when we built the house, <laughs> we dug underneath the house. Yeah. Right? But what that meant was underneath the garden, we couldn't have real gra- grass yeah. because it's not deep enough, right? So the seed won't take. So we have to have artificial grass, uh-huh. but it's really high quality stuff. So it looks yeah. great. I then, and we'd been in the house barely a week. So then I set this barbecue alight and it went up like the fire of London. And I <laughs> pulled the kids away. It slid off this thing, went onto my artificial grass and then just melted a patch in my brand new artificial glass and I was like that I told you it's me and my wife and our domestics just wait until we do a proper barbecue and I could have cooked in the house and we could have just it in the garden but no no you've got to do it on a real barbecue and now look what's happened is that one of those stories that she'll often bring up in those in those moments of kind of wanting to embarrass you in front of your friends oh there's loads of them. Yeah, yeah I've got loads of those yeah, as well yeah Always. And you know, the minute goes, oh, I've got a story for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, here we go. Yeah. I know where we're going. Yeah, exactly that. I had one of those with my, I was out with my parents for lunch the other day. And uh, my parents told my kids this kind of story about when I was a young child, which I'm not going to repeat on grilling, which is very, very embarrassing. (laughs) That I'd manage all the time when I hear my dad. I tell you something about your dad. I'm thinking, oh, I know the story. In the past, I've actually managed for all these years to avoid him actually getting to the end of the story. He actually, he actually succeeded on Friday. And I am I'm still getting grief from my son now about <laughs> about the story. Anyway, I am not going to tell you what that story is. All right. So um, brilliant. I, I love that. All right. Now, now the next thing we have to do, uh, we have our recipe challenge. We give you 45 seconds, Jay, to, to sell me a simple dish that you'd make while you're having a barbecue with your friends. So you can have any cut of meat, fish or veg. Um, you've got to have a marinade or a rub with it. And I need a cold side and ideally a sauce, but that's not kind of crucial. But you only have 45 seconds. And, and the other thing about it is you have to sell it to me. How can I put this in a polite way? No, I don't have a polite way of putting it. You've got to sell it to me as if we're on a chat line. Right. So, you know, I, I've chat I've line. dialed up <laughs> <laughs> I've dialed up for some food porn and uh, you have to um to sell it to me. So tell me the title of your dish. Uh, so you have 45 seconds starting now. Mr. Simon Rimmer, I am going to make you a Tex-Mex beautiful Wagyu Cote de Boeuf with homemade Jason Atherton, which I'll get to in a second, slaw, and a beautiful smoked bone marrow dressing. Right, first of all, take the beautiful Wagyu um, steak. It's going to have the gorgeous bone on it because it's going to go in our, on our barbecue, so we're going to get the loads of loads of uh, gorgeous smoke around it. 25 take, seconds gone. We're going to take smoked paprika. We're going to take uh, garlic powder, onion powder, and uh, herb rub. Mix all that together, rub it all over, lots of lashings of olive oil on top of that, and then we're going to stick it on our, on our grill and get loads of smoke mm. going around it. And that Wagyu fat now is caramelising mm. that steak beautifully. That is actually four times We keep going because I'm enjoying but... this so much. <laughs> then we take the slaw. <laughs> it's, onion, wor- it's worth the cab- extra pound a minute on my, uh, on my chat line. <laughs> Cabbage, onion, uh, smoked paprika mayonnaise, a little bit of uh, chopped uh, garlic, and some chopped chilli. 
grated apple, mix all that together with that mayonnaise, stick that on the side, take the bone marrow on the barbecue in half, get it lovely, lovely hot, take it out, scrape it, mix it with red wine sauce and fiery chilies. Oh my goodness, one minute 15, but that sounds, <laughs> that does sound, that sounds amazing. That does sound oh, there you go. straight out fantastic. the head. But, but I think it's the thing, is it, that I think that with barbecuing, more and more, I'm sort of finding that people are saying, okay, well, I can do sausages and burgers, but, you know, well, you can't do sausages, but, you know, most people can do, can do <laughs> sausages. You know, what else can I do? I think people are becoming more ambitious and also using the barbecue in a different way. So using it as an oven and using it as, yeah, a, as, a, as, a, as a great vehicle for cooking I mean, rather than just, a, you know, direct heat. I cooked, a, uh, on, the, on my barbecue the other night, I cooked some steaks. Uh, with this teriyaki glaze for nice. the family dinner, lovely. And then with the residual heat while it's going down for the next day, I had a pork belly, slashed it all, rubbed loads of salt and garlic into it. And then I got the skin really crispy as the residual heat was going off mm. the barbecue, seared it all the way over and then wrapped it in tinfoil and just cooked it for about three and a half hours in the oven and then left it for the kids for the next day while they're off school to pick at. And it's a way of using that res residual heat was everyone yeah. just thinks, well, once I've cooked dinner, the barbecue's no good. Whether you're putting peppers on there, vegetables, courgettes, all of that, it's all that heat can still be used, right? Yeah. Do you mean? I've got so obsessed with smoking cheese because I've got a smokestack barbecue from Weber and I just love it. I keep smoking feta and halloumi and anything else that will go on there. Smoke parmesan on it. I just kind of, I just really like it. Yeah, it's you know, flavor. I just and again in that whole thing when you've got very low heat and just letting it smoke, so you're not doing anything other than imparting flavour into it. It's just, oh man, it's just just off the scale. It, yeah, it yeah. really, really I is. Totally agree. So, do you barbecue much? I do, yeah. Especially in this house, in the old house, not so much, but this house, hundred percent. Um, you know, because the restaurants are now shut two days a week, so I've got literally two days off, uh, which I absolutely love because I get time to spend with the kids. Um, and that two days is purely for the kids, right? Because, you know, they've not seen their dad so much in the early years. Yeah. And now I'm very adamant that my two days off are always with the children. And we just do, yeah, we do that together. You know, I teach them how to do the barbecues properly and and, and how to, we've got a little pizza room, we make fresh pizza and it's just nice, isn't it? Nice. Yeah, I want it is, to have it those is. memories, you know? Yeah. When they're older, they say, oh, dad always did that with us. Oh, dad did this with us. You know, I don't want, they don't have to be chefs, but it's just nice that they understand the process of fresh food. Yeah, you know? I, I love that. I mean, you know, both both my kids cook. I mean, Hamish, my son in particular. And I love it. I'm dead proud of the fact that they do, you know, and it's just really nice and that they get excited and they'll, They'll share what they cook, you know, like Flo's 23 now. And like, you know, she cooks something decent at home for her friends. She'll show me pictures and she loves having a dinner party. And I just I love it. And that whole thing we were saying before about kind of from a restaurant point of view, it look at it and then you start analysing the way she's laid out. I think, oh, that's a nice bit of presentation. And I love it. You know, there is, there's something beautiful that you think, you know, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've done two things in my life with the kids. I've taught them both to swim and I've taught them to cook. And you go, well, okay, you know what? My yeah. work here is done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neither of them can read, neither of them can write. No, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, before we kind of go, go back to the series, just, just to remind you all, uh, we've got a special offer for you at Weber.com. If you want to improve your skills on the barbecue, Weber are offering you a discount to attend their Grill Academy. Now, that's where you learn to wow your friends with barbecuing expertise by learning from some serious pros, and they are seriously brilliant, with different courses available to suit all standards and all needs. The offer is valid for grilling academies in the UK. Enter the code GRILLING21, that's GRILLING21, before the 15th of October at Weber.com and get £50 off when you book two tickets on a course. And you can find all the information you need at Weber.com forward slash grilling. Also, by the way, that Weber website, great place to find loads of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons and 
a massive load of recipes. Not quite so sexily described as by Jason Adam, but we'll try and get him to do some uh, some voiceovers for it. Back to the real world. Do you mind if we leap to the Gordon Ramsay time? Yeah, absolutely. Because that time when, you know, the likes of yourself and Angela and Marcus Waring and Gordon, you were the hottest property in more than British cuisine. You know, we were probably the talk of the world almost with that. So how did that come about and how was the the experience? I mean, well, I'll never forget when Gordon said, he called me up. And he said, I, w- I just got back from Melbourne and I was a uh, head chef in a restaurant called Lanis yeah. in Kensington. Uh, I've not been there very long. And it was for a guy called Claudio Pauze, you know, great restaurateur. He opened Aubergine with Gordon and right. um, Zafrano with Giorgio Locatelli. Wow. Um, That's um, a pretty decent pedigree, isn't it? Yeah, Loranger with Marcus Waring. So yeah. he was, you know, he was he, he had a lot of amazing restaurants. Uh, so we'd done Lanis together, not been there very long. Gordon called the kitchen up and said, look, I want to come and see you. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. So, you know, Gordon was just starting to do his rise. He bought his first Ferrari, picked me up in a Ferrari. And I was like, wow, a chef yeah. driving a Ferrari, unbelievable. So we went for coffee. I'll never forget it. What is now, it used to be the old Cafe Oriel on Sloan Square. It's now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cafe Colbert now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were sat in there and he was like, look, I mean, you couldn't sit in a cafe with Gordon Ramsay now. You wouldn't have two minutes' peace. But back then, no one bothered it, mate. And we were sat there and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to start opening loads of restaurants and I want you to join my team. And I said, okay, well, you know, what does that look like? He said, well, look, just join. He said, I haven't got anything right now, but come to Wallace Ball Road and we'll talk. I said, okay, fine. So I started at Wallace Ball Road and within a couple of months, he was like, look, I want you to go and run Dubai with Angela. Mm-hmm. So go and be the head chef of the fine dining. Angela's going to run the whole project for six months. If you prove you can run it for me, because I need Angela as a safe pair of hands, then you can take over from Angela in six months. And that's what we did. Wow. Uh, and so I joined him, went to live in Dubai, uh, met my wife, got married, um, stayed there five, four years, five years. I, I just loved it. Loved it. Um, ran Gordon's restaurant very successfully. Um, you know, got best restaurant in the middle east this that da, 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 and people loved it it was packed and uh, yeah and that was gordon's first ever foreign restaurant wow and then where did you go after that so you five years for gordon over there well you know what it was a really interesting thing because i've always been ambitious obviously and i've never expected anybody to give me anything that's always that that's always you know too many people expect people to give them something for nothing mm-hmm. i always knew that i've got to make something for myself and the owners of a new hotel in Miami called the Set Eye were happy to stay in our hotel and they loved the food. And they said, oh, look, can we speak to the chef? So, so we had breakfast outside the hotel. And Gordon happened to be coming a couple of weeks later. My wife, Ira, um, want, would always want to go and live in America. And I quite fancied it too. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it's a land of opportunity. I've, I've done my time in London. Set Eye was being backed by Lenny Kravitz. And, you know, it was wow. a really cool thing. And so the owners of the hotel said, look, come run the hotel. You can put your name above the door. Uh, we'll give you a percentage of the profits. I didn't realize that was like a license agreement at the time because mm. I wasn't privy to all that. And, you know, we'll give you a share of the profits. And I thought, I'm not going to get a better offer than that. During, I get to live in Miami. Cool. Yeah. I've never been, but sounds pretty cool. Uh, my wife gets her dream to be live in America. We can start a new life in America. We'll have children there. And, uh, you know, this could work out for us. And so I spoke to her and she said, yeah, let's do it. So I put my notice in. And Gordon says, look, I'm coming there in a couple of weeks. Just wait till I get there. Let's have a chat. So we we had a chat and he said, look, there's no way you're leaving me. It's just not going to happen. 
I'm opening a new restaurant in London. What was I going to be maze? And I want you to come back and be a shareholder in it and be the chef. Uh, and I was like, wow. Okay. Um, let me speak to, speak to, uh, era. And he said, okay, fine. Speak to her and come see me tomorrow. So I said, okay, we'll come back to London. So we came back to London and then Maze was born. I mean, Maze, again, and, you know, I was saying to you before, you know, your, your career path, you've been involved with some of my favorite restaurants ever. Maze, in the same way that, in a different way. So Coast was really, really exciting. Machinaire was something that Manchester had never seen. And then Maze just did something else. I don't know what it was about Maze. It was just something that was just off the scale in its vibe and its whole kind of, its whole presence just, just felt that it was a, it was a huge kind of juggernaut of magnificence somehow. Did, did you think that from, from the start? No, not from the start, no. Right. You know what? When we won the star there in the first year, my first ever Michelin star, I was flabbergasted mm -hmm. because the kitchen was, I mean, there was nights where we just couldn't get food out. It was so busy. We just couldn't keep on top of the, mm. the orders. And I thought, how on earth we won a Michelin star doing that? I have no idea. I mean, you go and stand in the kitchen of Polish Street today, it's like clockwork. Nothing misses a bit. Yeah, yeah. And you think, how on earth did we win a star at Mays? And, you know, I've quite often spoke to a few inspectors since, and they said, you know, Jason, Mays was a game changer for a lot of people. As me, I'm like, really? And loads of people say that to me. And I'm like... It, it, it was. And I'm like, okay, I just didn't really see it that way. And I remember one of the fondest moments I've got in my mind, will always be with me, with Gordon was, Gordon was, at that stage in his career, was always very anxious what people wrote, wrote about him. And, and rightly so, because he was on a mission to be the best in the world, which, you know, he, he went on to achieve. And I've got nothing but good words to say about him. He's, you know, there's all this thing in the media about me and Gordon and Gordon and this and Marcus and Gordon and blah, blah, blah. But, and, the, and the press love all that, really. But honestly, me and Gordon, are, you know, we, we saw each other recently at the GQ Awards and both congrats, congratulate you. And I've always said that he's the best chef that's ever been produced in this country mm -hmm. because he's proven that time and time again, yeah. right? His TV shows, his cookbooks, his restaurants around the yeah. world, all of that. And he called me up. We, we, there was, um, the reviewer for the observer or the garden at the time. I can't remember. Jamois, mm -hmm. who was brutal. Yeah. And he, Gordon was terrified of what this review was going to say. And so obviously if Gordon's terrified, I'm terrified. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. cause I'm like rabbit in the headlights. I'm, yeah. I'm 33. I'm, you know, I'm back 33, 34. I'm back from, um, Dubai. It's the first time I've actually really ran a restaurant in London properly. Yeah. With a big name like Gordon behind it. It's fully booked. You know, there was Jamois, there was all these people coming in. And, you know, I'll never forget the last sentence Jamois said. You know, she said, This restaurant is simply brilliant. Jason, go ahead and dazzle the world. That's what she said. That's what, what she lovely, wrote. What a lovely thing to and, say. And and it was all about how Gordon's talented at picking talent. Uh, and the food and, and Gordon was just elated and and we had that conversation I was on the night bus going home and it was about 2.15 in the morning because back there and again you know no in, you know yeah, internet, it was, it was no internet. Remember, yeah, yeah, yeah I'd you know I bought the late night newspaper because it was coming out the next day and I'm on the night bus and Gordon calls me I'm like can I was 2.15 I'm like crikey it's 2.15 in the morning <laughs> And the boss is on the phone. I said, Gordon, you, you, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He said, have you got a newspaper? I said, yeah. He said, read it to me. Read it to me. So I read him that. He said, is, is it good? I said, yeah, it's fantastic. I said, read it to me. So I read it to him. Yeah. And he's like, great, great. Well done. Well done. Because it was a big deal for Gordon Mace. You know, he invested a lot of money into it. Yeah. And, you know, and he was a busy man, right? So he couldn't be there all day himself. So he yeah. trusted. He gave me a lot of trust. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and hopefully I paid him back on that.
around that time, though, you know, you've sort of mentioned Angela and Marcus. I mean, you, you were a formidable bunch of people. Yeah, but we were really close. You were, yeah. I mean, I, when I came back from Dubai, not, not many people know this, but I, I, you know, everyone thinks you in Dubai was on loads of money. I was on back then. I was on about twenty something grand a year. I right? was yeah. tax free. But you know, by the time you've you know gone out for a few meals and paid yeah. your bills, and you don't pay any tax on your wages, but you're not off paying it when you go and have a glass of wine or a beer. You know what I mean, yeah. And, and so I didn't really have much savings to come back to, so I, I I couldn't really afford a flat where I wanted to live at the time with with, with my now wife. And so we lived in Angela's loft. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. We lived in Angela's loft for a couple of months so we could save up a couple of months of salary to be able to get a flat. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's a funny story, that, is it? And uh, <laughs> we've been there a couple of days and, we're, and I'm so polite, right, that uh, my wife's like, you know, do you think it's okay we have a cup of tea? And I was like, I can't find the kitchen, babe. There's no kitchen here. She, Angela doesn't have a kitchen. And I didn't want to ask her because she was setting up the con all the time. <laughs> Uh, anyway, eventually, you know, eventually met up with Angela a couple of days later, and I said, "Angela, you don't have a kitchen in here." She goes, "I do. It's in the basement." I said, "Really? Where's the door?" She goes, "The door next to the back door. You open that, you go into the basement." I said, "Ah, oh, I just, <laughs> I just think she doesn't have a kitchen. Why does she have a kitchen?" <laughs> and tell this great story about you that they would be kind of their their last orders would be ten o'clock at night, and you would rock up at aubergine at aubergine, yeah. That you would rock up at quarter to ten, and they all hated you. Oh, all hate me! <laughs> but Gordon used to cook, want to cook for me. Yeah, and he always says this. You know what, Jason? I always knew with you, you were curious, and he said you you fascinate me a little bit because I knew you weren't making any money. You were a chef to buy at these restaurants, but you used to save up, come on your own, or come with a friend, and you'd come after work. He said, "Not many chefs would do that." Yeah, he said, and said, "You know, you come after work, and you come." sit down in the restaurant, order the tasting menu, pay, and then leave. Yeah. And he said, it always fascinated me because you were the only chef in London doing that. Yeah. And he said, and that's why. Because I said to Gordon, why, why didn't you just tell me you didn't want to cook for me? Yeah. He said, no, I want to cook for you. He said, they didn't want to cook for you. I want to cook for you. <laughs> brilliant. When, it, when Andrew's on, she was, she, she was just brilliant. She said, oh, I don't need all you should roll off a quarter ton. <laughs> And it's true, I did. I did. Oh, like all right, so, I mean, there, there is all this talk about you flat with Gordon, Mark's flat with Gordon, Angela flat with Gordon. I guess I guess fallout is is a word that is easy to use, but I suppose with, with that level of talented chefs and ambition, you're not all going to stay under that same umbrella. You, you've got to want to go and fly, fly, spread your wings yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And, and do it. I mean, so when did you know you needed to do that? I mean, what did Gordon nickname us in his book, Magnificent Seven? You know, he said that's yeah. when he knew he had something really special in the company. And um, I think at, the, at that time, he rivaled the cast for the most Michelin stars in the world, which is which is no mean feat, right? Wow, yeah. But like you say, all good things come to an end. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, I've had, in my company, I've had, I've had some teams where I'm like, wow, it's incredible, right? Yeah. But then eventually they disperse and you've got to build it back up again. And that's exactly what happened. And so... It got to 2010, so I'd been running Maze for five years, got the Michelin star, biggest climber on world's 50 best restaurants, all that type of stuff. It was great. You know, we won best restaurant in the UK from UK Restaurant Awards. We climbed to eight out of 10, the Good Food Guide, four rosettes. I just didn't believe I could take it any further. Right. And I just knew that I'd be a cog in a wheel if this restaurant just carrying on. And I had ambitions, you know, and I went, I, I'll never forget it. I was, I was cooking on the meat. Sorry, I was I was on. We had three sections: the meat, the fish and shellfish, and then hot cold larder. So there was always a chef running, and I I either ran the fish and shellfish section or the meat, and mm. then you command the pass from there. So yeah. so I'm plating up the meat, 
and I'd sent the last main courses. It'd been a bit pretty rough day. And I thought, I need to do my own restaurant. And I thought, what would that look like? And I drew it a million times in mm-hmm. little books that we all do. And again, gone home on the night bus. And I was sitting on the night bus looking out the window. We lived in Lambeth at the time. And I went over the bridge. And I just thought, look, if I don't do it now, I'm 30, what was I at that time? 39. Mm. I thought, if I don't do it now, it's going to be too late for me. So I went home. I was trying to know I was living in Balham. Sorry, what I'm talking about, living in Balham. And so I said to my wife, babe, what are we going to do? And she was watching me. I don't want to run maze anymore. Mm. And she goes, why not? I said, I said, because, you know, I can't really do anything more with it. Do you know? And she goes, why? I said, I just can't. Do you know? I said, we've either got to do our own restaurant, the restaurant of our dreams, or I want to move to America. Right. Go and be a head chef like Daniel Balud or mm. Thomas Keller and, and see where that takes us. Because otherwise, time's going to run out, right? Yeah. Uh, and she said, okay. Okay. And she said, well, what does that look like? I said, well, let me get my head around it and see what I think. So I, you know, start making a couple of phone calls and stuff and then uh, realized that, you know, it's not as easy as it sounds just setting up mm, a yeah. restaurant. <laughs> and so we'd saved quite a bit of money. I was, you know, I was a good saver. And, uh, you know, we had about a quarter million quid in the bank. We had a house at the time in Ballum. So remortgaged the house, betted all the money against it, um, found a site, got an investor, and Pollen Street Social was born. Wow. And that was it. It was that. Do you know what? And now I'm 50, I look back and I think, I didn't want to question myself. I didn't want to think, what if this doesn't work? I didn't want to think. Yeah. The only time I ever questioned if it would work is when me and Michael West, who's still with me today as group general manager, we went down to the office and it was time to turn on the phones a month before we opened. And I said to Michael, Crikey, what happens if we turn it on and no one phones? He said, everyone will, of course they'll call. I said, yeah, but why don't they don't? He yeah. said, Jason, they'll call. And I went, Michael, if they don't, you're the only person in the group, in the restaurant that knows this. I haven't got enough money to last the month. <laughs> I don't have enough money to pay the wages. I don't have enough money to pay suppliers. There's not enough money in the bank, right? So we'd have two choices. If no one comes, I might have to get another investor and sell more shares. Otherwise, we shut it. Wow. And he's like, really? I was like, yeah, really. And he went, well, they better, they better bloody ring then. And through, through all of that as well, because your wife, Ira, she equally must have had that same belief as you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's never doubted me. Yeah. She says you have this innate ability where you can dream something and it seems to happen. Yeah. And do you know what? She only said that the other day. And I was really proud when she said it, actually, because she'd never said that to me before. And she said it like, she said, you know, when you... She goes, it's, it's strange, Jason. You have this, you know, she said it with some friends. She goes, and I said, really? She goes, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I sit there, listen to you. Most people think you're talking crap, but I know you'll, <laughs> I know you'll make it happen. Yeah. Because you just, I don't know how you do it, but you just seem to be able to do it. Um, but, but I think, I think, you know, in the, in the course of our chat today, then that, I think that's the whole thing that you show that, you, you know, you sort of said, this is what you want to do. Then you're determined that you'll make it happen. You're not going to do it and, and, unless it doesn't. So obviously, Policy Social, was was a massive success. I'll go back to that phone call though. Yeah. So we turned Michael turned the lines on. We took seven thousand calls <laughs> in two days, and we were fully booked for the first six months. And then we had to stop taking bookings because we only wanted to take two months worth of bookings, but we didn't put the system in place. Right. So it was fully booked for six months, and we had to then close the book, catch up, and then we now only do bookings for two months in advance because people don't know what they're doing in six months' time. Right? <laughs> but it was such hot property that people wanted to be. To wow. come and see what it was. And it was just insane. Insane. Absolutely insane. You know, and then it was just heads down in the kitchen and do what we do best. Yeah. That was it. Jim. I read something that you were saying that for all the businesses that you have now, 
when you're in Pollen Social, you're a chef. And in the rest of them, then, not that you're not a chef, but you feel that you're a restaurateur. Yes. In the other side. And is that still true, do you think? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Because because I don't know if you feel like that, but when I, you know, take Marina Social, I can only be there three times a year. Yeah. And I go four days at a time. I fly, I get to the hotel, I check in, I put my whites on, I go down, I greet all the staff. Yeah. You know, talk to all the key people. How's it going? Yeah. Feedback. da 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 I've already had a look at like what the best sellers are, why, yeah, what we need to change. We'll work on new stuff while we're there. So you can't kid the public and say, oh, yeah, I'm in there. I'm cooking yeah. today. Yeah, listen, I'm cooking while I'm there. I'm on service, but yeah. I'm only plating the dishes and tweaking yeah. them. I'm not there in the morning chopping all the yeah. bones. Do you know? yeah. Whereas at Pollen Street, I physically am. Yeah. Physically. I'm literally in the kitchen when I'm in London in Pollen Street 80% of my time. If you were to... I mean, you talked before about, you know, you'd be just as happy being in the south of France with one of your daughters in the kitchen with you. Do you feel if you if you were going to get rid of the whole of the empire, Pollen Street Social would be the the hardest one? Say if you decide, right, you know what, I'm going to cash in. Yeah. Would that be the hardest one to let go? 100%. Yeah. It's got the risk in it, what we, do, what we took all those years ago. It's got the, you know, I've got pictures where my wife was, you know, at the opening party. My wife's there, pregnant with the second one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then on opening night, my first daughter got a foot infection. She had to spend the night in hospital, so she missed the party. And my dad missed the party because he slept in the hospital with her because I had to be there. Yeah. So there's so many memories, and you know, yeah. we, you know, we won the Michelin star. I remember Richard Vines calling me. I was in Dubai doing a deal for Marina Social. Yeah. And he called me and he said, I've got the Michelin guide. And he said, you know, you Pollen Street's got a Michelin star. And I was like, I jumped up in this meeting. And I was yeah. like, woohoo, do you mean? Yeah. And so there's just so many happy memories, you know? Yeah. I, I, well, you know, again, on a different level, but exactly the same thing. I, I feel that with Greens, you know, you, you we've both got a good few sites between us, you know, yeah. on, on very different levels, but we have a good few sites. It's funny, my daughter Flo, did a shift at Greens a while ago because um, we're a bit short of staff and like, you know, she's worked in hospitality since she was 16 and now she doesn't work in hospitality, but was short of staff because of, you know, normal pandemic. And everything. I said, listen, you don't fancy doing a front of house shift. She, yeah, yeah, no problem at all. And she said she was going back home to her flat and she felt really warm and cozy. She said, what is it? Why do we feel like she's really enjoyed it? And she said it was because I went home smelling like I did when yeah, she was little yeah, yeah, yeah. and she remembers that smell of being a small child and me mm. cuddling her smelling of the kitchen at greens and she, she came home she's there thinking well i feel really happy and uh, you know that whole thing you think god i love that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. such a, such a beautiful beautiful thing for it to say so so we've got palm street social i mean now how did you go from that to what what, what we got 17 sites mm. and it's been a really rapid rise mm. The mindset to change from having one very successful, brilliant Michelin-starred restaurant to now having, well, 17 brilliant restaurants, but that's a big leap, Jace, as a, as a human being. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to put a finger on it, really, because but I, think, I think the main thing for, for, for me was I've never set out to grow the company. And that yeah. sounds ridiculous. I've always let opportunity come to us and then examined if we want to do it or not. Can we do it? Do we have the talent to pull it off? And also, do I want to spend time in that in that area? Yeah. Because it's no good opening 50 restaurants around the world. You know, I didn't want to, be, and I also didn't want to become one of those chefs, uh, you know, I won't name names, but you, you're spending 11 months of the year traveling yeah. and never seeing your family. I said, I, I'm prepared to give up 50% of my time mm. to build a company where our team can thrive. But once it starts to go above that, 
I can't, I can't do it. Yeah. So we do turn a lot, you know, we, we've turned some fantastic places down in Tokyo because the owners what there six times a year. I said, I can't come to Tokyo six yeah, yeah. times a year. And they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay. I said, it's not about the money. I just, I just can't afford to come to Tokyo six times a year. I can't do it. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. This was obviously pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, and then, you know, we've had offers to be business partners in different areas of the world where I just have no ambition to go. Yeah. And that's not because there's anything wrong with those areas. I just don't want to spend any time there. So does that mean then that, you know, the, the goal now really is to continue that, you know, an opportunity comes up or you say, or, or being Jason Allen, you go, do you know what would be really amazing if I had a, if I built myself a restaurant in the middle of uh, Epping Forest uh, and I'm going to build it out of Lego, then, then that'll happen. That's fundamentally the way that you work really. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Pretty much. I think, I think, you know, some people look at arrogance, but we're certainly not arrogant. We don't, you know, everyone will tell you as ever done partnerships, I'm the easiest guy to work with. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm very pragmatic. Business has to work for both parties. When it becomes a one-way street, it's, it's, it's all only going to end in tears. It's never been about money. It's never been about money, ever. Yeah. The, the day you go out there and just money grab, your career will end very fast. Yeah. If you share that with your staff, you share it with your business partners, um, you know, your hotel partners, whatever it is, then it will always grow on and be more fruitful. And also, you know, my legacy is really important to me, Joe. And I want people to say that, you know, when it's all done and dusted for us, that we were good people and we ran a good business. I agree with that. And, and, and you know, we looked after our staff. Listen, you're never going to please everybody because you don't have opportunity for everybody. But, you know, the amount of people who come to me, I know we do do right thing because a lot of young chefs will call me up. I've never even met before and said, you know, look, is, is it okay? Can I come and have a coffee with you? And I spare them that time. You know, and literally one came the other day and I won't, I won't name him because you do know him and, and, he, and he's having a, f a few problems and, uh, with his investors and he came to me for advice. Um, and I said, look, you know, you, you, you gave him the advice I thought was correct. Yeah. And I take pride in that. The fact that yeah. they come to me for advice, you know, because they, they see me as now me and Ira own the business ourselves. Um, and we've always looked after our team. We've always, everything we've promised, we've always delivered. And, you know, we've always put the, put the teams first. And I think that's really important, you know? Yeah, definitely. We have one more thing to do. One more, one more bit of fun. So, I mean, this is going to be one of the best ones. Every guest that we have on, we ask them for your, your little secret place. I mean, it, it can be a fantastic restaurant. So basically, if you've got that time, just you and your wife or just you, it can be anywhere in the world where you like to go and eat or have a cup of coffee or just sit with a glass of wine looking at the sea. Where... Are you going to take us, Jason? Where are you going to take our, our listeners so they can go and be Jason Atherton in a chilled out moment where you were in your happy place? Okay. So, so there's a tiny little restaurant. If you're ever on the Amalfi Coast, uh -huh. not many people know about it. It's extremely difficult to get to, and it's called Da Adolfo. Mm -hmm. You have to get a boat to it. Um, so uh, I, I treated my wife many years ago to um, go and stay at La Serenusi. Uh, in Positano. We've been to Positano a few times, but never stayed at the Serenusi because you can't take children. Right. So we'd always taken the children because it's on the rocks, you know? It's, yeah. It's quite dangerous. So I said, look, I really want to go to that hotel. So me and you'll go on our own. And then I found out for a chef friend of mine who owns a two-star restaurant there called uh, Don Alfonso. And he said, have you been to Da Adolfo? And I said, what, is it your sister's restaurant? Because it sounds the same. He's like, no, no, this is Da Adolfo. He said, it's an old guy who owns it. It's a beach shack. Um, it's just round the corner from Positano. Wow. Um, he said, call this number. He said they'll put you up on a little fishing boat, take you around, and it's just, and it's just full of locals. 
right? And there's a couple of uh, um, foreign tourists full of locals, all the kids. There's a little rock in the sea, and all kids jumping off the rock. Uh, and this guy has got his own couple of fishing boats. All the fish is all just piled up. Wow. Pasta that have got a cracking little wine list. Absolute bargains on there. And then me and my wife just sit there on plastic chairs, plastic table, oh. plastic tablecloths, and we just eat for like four hours, drink three, four bottles of wine, <laughs> barely get barely get back in the fishing boat, <laughs> and then back around the corner. It's just, oh, it's like talented Mr. Ripley for for the boys from the boys from the council estate. <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds amazing. That that just sounds off the scale. Jason, it, it's always great to spend time with you. And you know everything that you said. You know, I've, we've known each other for quite a few years now. And every single time I see you, you have no arrogance. I think you know that that you know you sort of say people might see it as arrogance. You you really really don't. Every time I see you, you know you're generous. You always kind of you remember things that I've told you ages ago. And we're both incredibly busy men, and I love that. You always ask about the family, and that's the person that you are. And you know your your success will continue undoubtedly. And you, you know it, it's been a joy having you on, and I'm not looking forward to uh, being Ben and having to edit that because we've probably got about <laughs> probably got about four episodes with you, Chase. Always a joy to see you, mate. Thank you so much for Thank joining you, us on Grilly. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much to Jason for joining us on Grilly. I knew that was going to be the one that was going to take the longest time. His career, well, he's kind of actually had the career I wish that I'd had. Just an amazing man and also a really, really lovely fella as well. Um, hopefully he's also given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber barbecue, uh, apart from sausages. Head to Weber.com for plenty more recipe ideas from racks of lamb to salads and, of course, kebabs and burgers. And don't forget to check out that £50 discount to their grill academies at Weber.com forward slash grilling. So do review, rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and tell your friends about us too. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon.